Okay, let's hear it. Defenders of the universe, it's Darren Maskell and a guest. Defenders of the universe, who knows what they're going to defend next. It's like 12 seconds. So, um, I'm just going to start recording now, if that's okay. Whatever, this is it's completely up to you. Okay, thanks. Uh, let, let's uh, go with that dynamic that I'm the dominant one in this. You are. <laughs> um, be the first time. So, um, do you remember the first time we ever met Ian Smith? Um, um, I think, um, so, in my head, it could have been a new act competition. Ooh, no. Was it a new act one? I oh, I thought you were leading this as in you knew it. I, 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 I can't remember any times. Um, uh, it, it, well, it would have been a gig, but um, what gig it would be, I would not know. Um, but then, obviously, you meet all these people on the circuit, hundreds of people, and you don't necessarily, um, like, gain any real relationships with them. Mm. Um, you don't call them your friends, really, do you? Uh, but um, I guess I kind of um, gravitated towards you the first time would probably be the um, North Essex um, New Act of the Year gig. Wow, I can like barely remember that being a competition. <laughs> it wasn't though, was it? It was, it was two gigs, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, man, I, you just enter anything that anyone could put on a New Act competition and get everyone, everyone would do it for like a 50 quid prize just because you're desperate to say you were award winning. <laughs> and it didn't matter what award it was. Um, I won like a Newbury, Newbury's New Act, Newbury Com Festival or whatever. And then I started calling myself award winning. And then someone would go, oh, what award? And I'd say it and they'd be like, oh, right. No one cares. Everyone just wants to say award winning. It? But it's inconsequential. But how did we do in that? I can't even remember. We mustn't have won it, did we? We're in the final. I don't even remember getting that far. No, because I I was crowned the winner. Were you really? Yeah, but I don't it, mean that as in surprise no, as in your ability. What it was, I didn't actually win it. Actually, <laughs> what it was was I was crowned the winner, but this will jog your memory of it. Um, the guy that actually won it was the guy that did impressions, and he went over time. But okay, the, I do remember the, that. the judges gave it to him, but then they disqualified him because he went over time. I remember you um, uh, saying to me when they were trying to, um, they were deciding about who was winning, you came up to me, as long as that guy doesn't win, I don't care, I don't win, I just don't want him to win. <laughs> I'm, I really like um, all the, and now I guess I know people who do them and, and stuff, but I, 
and so I'm always wary about saying it, but I, I really don't respect impressionists. <laughs> I, I think it's such a like crap art form. I, I know you can sort of do good writing with it and stuff, but it's those. He was like a, I imagine like that entry level impressionist who's just like um, has to say the name of who they're doing the impression in it, and just goes like, oh, imagine them. Um, Arsene Wenger working in um, cost cutter, There's and then would just do that. Ones, like always, the da- David Attenborough. Wouldn't it be weird if David Attenborough commentated um, going to the supermarket? What yeah. would that like? And I approach the hummus. In the, and that's always the staple one. And then it, everyone's always got. You're good at that, mate. You should you know, do that. Yeah, everyone's also get got yourself the, back on the circuit. <laughs> the Christopher Walken one. Oh yeah, everyone does yeah. that. Christ- Christopher Walken one, um, Robert De Niro, Michael Caine, a lot Michael of people. Kane. But they always do the impression by saying, "My name is Michael Caine," <laughs> and you're like, hey, even if that's awful, I know it is. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not happy with that at all. It's it's always that um, saying. There's no hack jokes. Uh, there's no hack subjects. Just hack jokes so you can you can always do impressions in a clever way i think but mm. it's just rare that people ever do um so that's that yeah that's enough slagging off uh, yeah whoever that was short time in comedy <laughs> i hope they're i hope they're listening to this oh i catch i remember dan maskell from that competition um and then he just hears us uh, slagging him off um, Good. I'm, I'm glad you're not on the circuit anymore if you're listening. <laughs> um, so let's go. Let's um, go straight into your first choice. Um, <coughs> yeah. Uh, oh God, bring it up. Um, let's go with. Oh yeah, let's go with tinned meatballs. Yeah. Tinned meatballs. And Those are meatballs just... that are in a tin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, yeah, the tinned ones. I think they're. I don't know if it's Frey Bentos that do them. Oh, yeah. You could get them in um, different flavors as well. But but just your standard tin. Like there's no meat in them. I no. think I think I looked and it said something like twenty six percent or thirty yeah. percent meat. And then it doesn't have to say what the rest is. Um, it just says thirty percent of this is meat. But um, I used to like um. I just know that people think they're disgusting mm-hmm. or that you shouldn't have them because you've got no idea what's in them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think they're great. I haven't had them in a while, but in um, putting together this list, I think I'm going to buy some um, and just have them at the age of 32, some lovely meatballs. But um, it's that right? I think the consensus is everyone looks at them and goes, looks down at you mm-hmm. for eating them. Um, I remember getting them in university and um, some of the people I was in halls with, like, I remember being, because I wasn't really aware until other people saw them, like, because, um, you know, my family would have been buying them when I was a kid, so they're not ridiculing them. But as soon as other people saw them, they were just like, "What? what is this? So then I would only cook them when no one else was in the kitchen, like in, hunched over the like pan in secret. And then if someone else come in, I'd like um, I'd be mortified because I knew that I was going to get rinsed, rabbing tin meatballs. But um, 
I think they're great. Have you have you ever had them? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, let me say, um, in this um, modern day, uh, <laughs> we're we're encouraged to know what's in our food a lot more, and so that's yeah. why people, because obviously. There's a lot of sugar, um, preservatives, and as you said, there's hardly any meat in them. People do have that snobbery of that you, sh it's it's processed um, food, and we're not, our bodies aren't designed to um, really. Um, we shouldn't really be putting that in our bodies because our bodies doesn't know how to process it properly. Um, however, there are a lot of people. Um, that um, can't afford to um, live healthily and they are relying mm. on these staple foods to live on and it's not really a choice for them um, to have like um, organic and fresh ingredients so um, and also I am very aware how difficult it is for parents to encourage children just to eat any kind of food um and a lot of the times uh there's a lot of pressure on parents to give children something healthy but if they won't eat it you want them to at least eat something and they yeah you can't just waste your money on like a big bag and like bags and bags of kale yeah. it just goes unused yeah so people uh parents are uh always one having to make that choice well they're not eating healthy food i can't give them nothing so it's better to give them something at least something even if it is like packed with the sugar at least they're getting some kind of food mm. um and some of the food like um i um uh got my uh, we got a slow cooker recently yeah. and um i love slow cooking stuff oh, yeah. but not everyone has time like um if you're like a busy like um parent or like a you know like say a single parent family yeah. you're not going to whack the slow cooker on for six hours um but the cuts of meat that are like good in a slow like yeah. cheap meat that you get sounds is is horrible unless you cook it in like right. an all right like um i made um i've been cooking a bit more during lockdown made ox cheeks, oh, yeah. which are like a pound for like a huge like slab of cheek. But you have to yeah. cook them for like, just from Morrison's. Really? They sell ox cheek now? Morrison's are just like, they've lost their mind a bit in the meat section. <laughs> so they do like all your normal meats. Yeah. And then I think anything surplus. So there's pig's trotters yeah. in Morrison's. Yeah. Um, they do like um, bone marrow, you just get a bit of bone. Um, hearts you can get um, lamb hearts yeah. and stuff. I haven't cooked them, but they just do like um, big bags of offal and all sorts of yeah, stuff. Like offal uh, in the past, obviously, is very cheap and people. It's like the poor man's food, but because like a lot recently, a lot of celebrity chefs uh, encouraging mm. people to use offal, it becomes trendy, and then obviously. It, hucks up the prices uh, they're taking it away from the poor man they are really because you see a lot people of, can't have liver anymore ox cheek is on a lot of restaurant menus and mm. um, 
people uh, they're using a lot of um, marrow for a lot of uh, ingredient uh, recipes as well. Um, but marrow is so you can just buy a big bone full of marrow in Morrison's, yeah. like fifty p. But it's so same with ox cheek. It's so expensive in a restaurant, and you eat it and you think, oh, this is decadent. It's falling apart. This meat, it's beautiful, but it's just cheap meat that they've probably just incinerated for like a day. I, I, um, I can draw from my uh, fishmongering, fishmongering, fishmongering days. Um, the fact that um, within the fish industry, people, it's the big trend is sustainability. And this, they're saying that um, fish is being overfished. We shouldn't buy a cod anymore because it's overfished. So um, people um, are turning to other white fishes like coli. And coli in the day was like people just fed it to their cats. It was a rubbish fish. And so it's really cheap. But now the trend is to steer away from cod. People buy coli. And that hucks up the price, and coli is just as uh, pricey as cod nowadays. And so, it, a, a lot of food prices are determined not by how much it costs to transport it and produce it. It's a lot of about fashion. You, you'll Maybe that'll happen with meatballs then. Maybe if like if, um... if they become trendy, they'll be pricey. Yeah. If the Michelin star, because if you've got a Michelin star, you should be able to cook meatballs and make them amazing. <laughs> um, that should be like part of the process for getting one, I think. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you don't see beans on toast in restaurants, but that's like no. one of the nation's favourite foods. And so you'd think um, there'd be some kind of variation on a menu of beans on toast. Yeah, there must be a kind, there'll be a like um, flava bean <laughs> on on sourdough yeah, or yeah. something. So one of the mad beans. I've tell you, um, I mean, this isn't really related, but um, a big fan of Heinz five beans. Oh, yeah, 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 I do that. I like lovely, it. lovely stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's all I've got oh, to say. It, yeah. it's, it's lovely stuff. Um, but the meal that I used to have with meatballs is like, I think I used to have that if um, my brother and my mum and dad were eating something that I didn't like because I was quite fussy as a kid. I would have like um, meatballs and then like a sort of mini French bread. And I'd just have meatballs and bread. But it was, it was incredible. And we'd get the French bread in the oven for a bit like slice it put a bit of but like how you would garlic bread but i didn't like garlic so just had this hot like um yeah buttered french bread and some meatballs yeah. and it's just incredible and you when you're a kid you the meatball marijuana <laughs> i think so yeah well i can't really talk about it because we've got an ongoing case with um somebody <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think theirs is as like i think they they do it with a tomato sauce and not a like a uh, really thick gravy um like um I, yeah i mean i don't know i think like a lot of people who criticize meatballs as well haven't haven't had them because there's something fascinating about a food product that is tastes as smooth as meatballs do the tin meatballs there's no texture to them at all they're just like i remember once like 
cutting them with my knife um just to see how the inside is so smooth there's no like um i can't describe what it would be like um looking at it. so almost like the surface of a recently polished snooker ball yeah like you know just completely smooth and clean yeah. um and no part of me was ever worried about that mm. um but maybe i'm projecting a lot of home comfort onto main poles well as we're heading into the um apocalypse mm. there'll be some kind of uh progression towards making tin food more fashionable and acceptable because we're gonna have to stock up obviously mm. and so there will be some kind of uh rebranding of maybe fray brand trust products um they'll become the more high-end version and so yeah they'll do just need to change the word tinned i think tinned <laughs> tinned well, it to like Americans encased canned Canned meatballs doesn't sound amazing, does it? Um, locked in meatballs. Locked in. Mm. Met- metal surrounded meatballs. Encased. Encased. Encased meatballs sounds all right. Um, vacuum packed. Mm. And they're not vacuum packed, are they? To make you think of the sub uh, underground. Impacting. Packed meatballs sounds dodgy. <laughs> oh, lovingly prepared. What? Who's? Who's is that? That's Morrison's tagline, isn't it? Lovingly yeah. prepared. Oh, I don't know actually. Um, they're all good ideas, though. They're all worth emailing off to Frey Bentos. Where are they from? Um. Are they a South American I company? I think I'm going to Google Frey. Frey Brentel sounds like South American. Because maybe if they just, yeah, if they just pronounce it differently, make it sound, um, <laughs> the picture on their website of the steak and kidney pie in a tin, I, get, I don't think they come out like that. It looks beautiful. And there's, um, oh, I've gone on their official website. I was trying to go on their Wikipedia page. Here we go. Oh, hang on. Yeah. Bray Bentos is, oh, I've, yeah, I've clicked on the wrong thing. It's the capital of uh, the Rio Negro department in southwestern Uruguay. Oh, yeah. Um, Africa. Well, no, that's South America. Um, can't be, right. How is it? The name is derived from the part of Fred Bentos in Uruguay, where the products were originally processed and packaged. Um, oh, now they're done in Scotland. I don't know if that answers you. The Uruguayan. Scottish um, bloke just nicked the name, like Dolmio, which is made in, like, Denmark or something. Is it even with those authentic Italian actors that they have doing the? Um, I bet those actors are definitely um, just like sort of white British people <laughs> doing racist accents in a sound booth. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, Would you take that job if someone said? Um, We'll give you five five grand to voice the Dolmio characters for a year. Definitely. <laughs> um, next time I go to an Italian restaurant, table for my school? No, nah, it's all booked up. Oh, God. I've had a right 
to me all day. <laughs> it's you, it is. It's you, it's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's me. I'm the Dermio day guy. <laughs> I can imagine them serving you with their hands like shaking because they're uh, <laughs> nervous if you're going to like it or not. Yeah. That's the dream. Oh, the best of the dreams. Let's move on to your next uh, topic. Um, yeah. Let's go for Hull. Hull. Yeah. H-U-L-L, the city of Hull. Hmm. Why do I the cities of Hull? Well, it's been voted like the worst place to live like loads of times. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's very much like a punchline. And and I don't, I guess I, it's not the best defence of it, but um, but because I like live in like a small town, all these kind of crap, like big towns or cities that were nearby, I thought were magical because they had like a HMV and a top man. Mm. And like when I was like a teenager, they're the only like two shops I was like obsessed with. Um, so like Scumthorpe and Hull and stuff like that, I think are incredible. Mm. Um, so Hull was like the first place that I'd go to um, like the cinema with friends that would go through to like somewhere for the day watch a film have some food or something and then come back but it's um it's got everything you need like um yeah clothes shops hmv it's um it's by it's by this the water it's got um a lovely sort of marina area um the deep it's got a big old aquarium um it's got um a McDonald's. It's, you know what I mean. A port. It's got a port. Yeah, I think it's got a port. Um, but I think it's, it's just um. Yeah, I don't know what um. I mean, I guess there are like rough areas of it and stuff, but to me, it's like a magical place to go when you when you're a kid. If you're not from a city and you go to a city. You kind of think, look at all the look at all there is to do. I, I don't know what if anyone's been there and has a. Have you been to Hull? No. Yeah, so I guess you you've got nothing negative to say about it. No, no, I, I think it's what one of those examples of um, uh, just snobbery of mm. the north in one part. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think um, a lot of people in the north are um, just a lot more down to earth and don't need to put up any pretenses about um, anything. And people in the south would rather look at themselves as better than people, and that's why they put these uh, negative connotations on towns in the north and try and represent themselves as something better when in fact every major city in this country is just the same they've got negative and positive um, aspects of them like if you take Wimbledon for instance you've got the posh part of Wimbledon and you've got the shithole part of Wimbledon and mm. you'll get that everywhere so it's no better or worse than any other place in this country. Yeah, and it it seems like mad that um 
I definitely think it's a northern thing of why it's always voted like the worst place. And there are like, I think there are really rough places in, in Hull. Like there, there's a school we used to drive past on the way there that had apparently had like shutters so that when they kicked off like riot style, they would just shutter the kids into the school because like they would just riot and break out of the school so often. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I just, I like, I think there are like, when I, the only times I've gone to a place and thought that they're, they're really grim have been like coastal places, those old coastal places that were like at the peak, like in the 70s or 80s or something. Um, I don't think Hull's got that vibe. It's not got the vibe of this used to be nice and now it's rough. I think it's just consistently been quite rough. You went to Chernobyl, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's rougher than Hull. Yeah. <laughs> that's an awful place to live now. <laughs> People are going there for like um, like sightseeing holidays now, aren't they? It's quite trendy. Mm. Yeah, and like me and my brother went before the TV series come out. Um, so now it's become a bit pricier to do it. But um, it's a really, it was a really cheap holiday because flights to the Ukraine for like return flights were like £25. Because I think at the time as well, it was still in like a, I mean, I think it still is, but it was in a decent old wall of Russia. And I think a passenger plane had been shot down, um, you know, like six months before. So people weren't as keen on passenger planes to the Ukraine. Um, so the flights were cheap. We got an Airbnb that um, looked better in the photos online than it was. It was just in like a block of flats. It was quite scary. So that cost us about £40 each. Um, yeah, and then Chernobyl, it was about like 100 quid maybe to go to Chernobyl. Um, but it's great. You, um, I think, like... Um... Like Hull gets has this bad reputation that obviously drives down the prices, price of living there, and um, the amenities and stuff like that. And then people see that it's a cheap place, so then they move back there and try and um, build up some kind of um, see like what happened at Margate. That's now a really trendy place to live because it was so cheap mm. and they've built some kind of hipster community out there <laughs> load of really yeah there's... The, the margate hipsters there's margate hipsters now you're not seeing that no isn't that where dreamland is the old banksy thing oh i don't know oh god i thought you were down with the goldsmith crew no no i was very much an outsider at goldsmith <laughs> I just remembered that probably the amount of gigs that I booked for at Goldsmiths, but then did they just get cancelled? No, they were. <laughs> that um, I remember the first time I did your Goldsmith gig, it was Paul Foot, I think. And that was really nice because oh, I'm a big Paul Foot fan, and it was like quite packed. There was like a hundred people, hundreds of people there. And mm. slowly that gig kind of went. Oh, it died. <laughs> yeah it would always be amazing at freshers it'd be like 300 people there and then i'd say at the uni like so let's let's book them in so that people know it's happening then we'd maybe do one with like 
100 or 50. And then they would all be like on the line as to whether they'd go ahead or not. And usually it'd be like five people would pull the gig and then the union get angry at me for insisting that they pay the act still because it's their fault for like not promoting it. And then that would just happen. But I know Paul Foot played it twice. And once he like really stormed it and did brilliantly. And another time he wasn't doing as well. And if he's not doing as well, he, he, no part of him thinks like, I'll best wrap this up or change tact or whatever. He just, it's like he thinks, oh, I'm going to stay on until I do well. I'll get him eventually. So I think he did like 40 or 50 minutes. Like, um, and he was like humping someone at the front of the crowd. I don't know if that's the one you were at. Um, if you remember him humping someone for 20 minutes. Um, but um, it was very fun. Oh. Yeah. It's all it's all about um, rebranding these places. They all... Yeah, well, Hull was City of Culture yeah, a couple yeah. of years ago, but they've started doing that now. I think they do that. Like the places that apply for City of Culture are quite bad places because <laughs> yeah. they're desperate for regeneration. So City of Cultures is just that. Like, um, um, uh, I. I think this is borderline offensive to say now, but I think it's the Stuart Lee sort of thing about the tallest dwarf yeah. sort of um, analogy, where um, which I, I don't know, um, I don't know um, how comfortable I feel saying that, <laughs> and uh, but um, but yeah, basically that like if you win, you're basically the best crap town, or the crap town most in need of regeneration, mm. so they give you city of culture because. I remember like Hull was going up against like Coventry or something. You just yeah. thought these can't be the two candidates for city of culture, Hull or Coventry. It's just, um, it's like a, um, um, what's the charity for? Um, it's like a make a wish foundation for cities, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's move on to your next one. Yeah. Uh, this would cheer us up. Um, Daniel Benningfield's. Benningfield. Yeah. Bedding. Beddingfield. Yeah. Right. So when you chose this, I looked into it and, like, my. Um, if I was to think of Daniel Benningfield, I always thought that during that period that he came out, he, he was, like, really massive and he sold that album sold like loads, millions and millions, mm. re really popular. But then looking into it, it was only the like 60, I said it right, it's like number 60, I get the exact number, um, Daniel Benningfield, 62nd highest album of the year. So it didn't even really? do that well. Like, yeah, I think that's mad because I, I remember like, um, like I don't like um, that type of music usually at all. Um, like, um, and I, I remember hearing about him when, um, because as well, you like, um, now you can just get all the music online and you can just discover your own music. Whereas when I was that age, you kind of like have to hear it on TV or yeah. have it hyped up in some way. 
and I I remember people saying that um he had like a bidding war of um record labels yeah. um and everyone desperate to kind of get him and I remember finding that fascinating like I still find stories about that fascinating when it's like someone who's releasing a book and when they say like oh film production companies are all bidding because they, they want the rights to this like there's something about that which just immediately gets me like hooked but um but yeah so I remember everyone was like after him and then that first like when he did them um, gotta get through this it like it just went huge or in my memory it went huge and then that first album I think he had like there's like eight or nine tracks from it that because usually like someone releases an album maybe maybe three singles come off it but um i remember at one point just thinking he's gonna release every track as a single (laughs) every track's gonna be a single even though people have got the album who's gonna buy a single he's just doing everyone um yeah and then just like um he just disappeared pretty quickly and i think it was unfortunate that his sister started doing quite well because that's a kind of narrative that i think um papers would quite like of kind of going he's been overshadowed by his own sister yeah. um, rather than like trying to plug them both or whatever I think papers really like taking someone down who's doing well and I think it was like maybe the perfect cocktail of like yeah yeah your own sister's beating you in the charts now and you're a nobody um but yeah he's just, but then I, so I remember like looking him up on Spotify like not long ago after a kind of like, I wonder what Daniel Beddingfield is doing kind of moment. And um, he'd released some kind of little like EP and stuff. Um, but one of the tracks on it is great. And, I, and there's seen like a live clip of him doing it. And he kind of does like weird stuff with a microphone and harmonies and stuff. And he's, he's fantastic. It's a, it's a great sort of like, um, he's got a brilliant singing voice and stuff. But I, I don't know why he's, I don't know how he can vanish as much as he has. I guess there must be a lot of other people who's done it, but you know, he's he's completely obscure now. Yeah. And he was yeah, I find it crazy that it was only like the 62nd um biggest album. But um yeah, I thought he would be um I thought he'd be around for ages, but I he's he we've reached that point now where He's now become um, nostalgic, and we're, mm. we're kind of in that period where that period of like 2002 is now being brought back as like this old school stuff. So like we're seeing mm. Craig David come back, Steps always come back every. Oh yeah, they what stop coming back? Yeah, <laughs> um, and so and I think Sugar Babes are gonna. Are releasing something soon. Oh, and thank so, God. Thank you. Yeah. Your Benio, Benio, my favourite chocolate bar. Um. Uh. So it, we'll probably see him uh, reintroduced some way. Um. In the near future. So I think, mm. I think that 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 kind of music always gets recycled. Um. In that sense. But, um, I hope so, Darren. I hope so. <laughs> I think, yeah, because I'm surprised as well that him and like his sister or his family haven't all sort of teamed up and been like, right, let's set up a family band and 
because I think the big um, well, they certainly were. He was known as like a big Christian, and when I think of like Christians, or like in school, there's um some um quite Christian kids, and they had a family band. Like I really associate Christianity with all the family sat at home singing together in in an absolutely mental way, um, and like a dad playing drums as all his kids like sing and stuff and sort of whipping them from the drum kit if they mess up their harmonies. That's that's what I think Christianity is. Um, so I'd like to see a bit of that. I I gigged with his brother, who's also a singer, um, at an outdoor festival. Um, and he, and it's just weird because he looks a bit like ever so slightly like Daniel Benfield because they're related. And when he goes on stage, like, sorry, I'm not slagging him off, but everyone, as soon as you hear the name Benfield, because it's not common, you're just like, no. Daniel Benfield's brother. Like, you, you can never, like, I, I think he must be trying to coast off it a bit because surely you would just want to use a, you just make up a stage name. Otherwise, everyone's going, oh, yeah, he was that guy who sort of faded out a bit. And his sister did quite well, but then she sort of faded out a bit. No one's going to have any hope the longevity of, like, Justin Bedingfield or whatever his name was. Um, the highlight of his set as well is he, um, he did a song that included quite a lot of high notes, and then after the song, he just apologised. <laughs> <laughs> he finished his song and said, oh, thanks, guys. Uh, ah, I'm sorry, I, I'm a bit out of practice. And he was just like, he'd clearly finished the song. Everyone was happy enough, but he knew he'd been, he knew it was bad. And he just had to go, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you had to listen to that. Anyway, here's my next one. Um, but yeah, he just had some absolute. Um, also, I admired his confidence to like borderline rap and beatbox in some things. And it was, it was awful. But, um, but I enjoyed it so much because maybe I thought I wish I had the confidence as a sort of if I was a white Christian man like devout Christian to just go I'm going to do an acoustic beatboxed version of this song and I'll and I'll and I'll nail it and I don't care what people think I've actually got um my own Daniel Benefield gig story but I just wanted oh, yeah. it's not actually funny but I'll tell you anyway and um I was booked to do um, a gig. It was um, Kojo's gig. Um, it was in Leicester Square in like the big, massive, I think at the Empire or something mm. like that. And it was at this period of time where I was doing um, my first urban gigs and I was doing really well in them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you were on the urban. You just no, put that in there. I know. I you were on the urban circuit for I, a while. I, I was from the measuring point. out different Ribena strengths. <laughs> I was doing quite well. It was when I was more animated and uh, glittery, um, and I was doing quite well at them. And I, I got I got booked for this Kojo um, gig, and so I um, I went to it, and then I was put in the VIP area because I was an act. And the only other, um, if people don't know what an urban gig is, it's uh, predominantly black people in the audience. And I was put in the VIP, and the only other white person in the room was Daniel Benningfield in the <laughs> VIP section. He came up to me and 
he shook my hand. He said, oh, nice to meet you, Darren. I, I thought I was, I was only going to be the other white person here. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, so he was relieved to see you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, thank God. Darren Maskell's here and I'm not going to feel as weird at this <laughs> urban gig. And then what I didn't know about the gig was it was um, like a gong show. And I didn't know that. And like, I was doing quite well in these urban gigs because I would set up my um my my initial joke was was to um i'd come on stage and they'd see a white guy and then i'd say it was just a, as obama had just been elected and at, at all comedy gigs if you wanted to get a round of applause you go hey what about this obama hey eh? president and everyone give everyone a like a cheer yeah. yeah and so i always went on i went on stage and i went hey how's people thinking about this Obama and everyone would cheer and I go yeah does anyone feel like this is uh based on a lot of uh false hopes and empty promises and it's actually not going to turn out any good and <laughs> like people would be on the uh back foot and then I'd do my set and um uh it would go well but I opened with this at this gig and it just fell flat on its ass and everyone started booing me because I basically <laughs> just tr trashed Obama. <laughs> and then I got booed off stage and then they wouldn't let me back into the VIP section. <laughs> and I, I was, I was Even like, Bedingfield distancing Bedingfield himself from me. Bedingfield didn't have my back after all that. Uh, oh. And do you hold that against, against no. him? for yourself mate i guess it would have been weirder if he'd gone then um, <laughs> if he'd stuck up for you and like nah mascal us us whites <laughs> at the urban gigs <laughs> we stick together here. he'd be like man no I, I don't like the sentiment there daniel but fair play on the courage to go to um an urban <laughs> gig and and try and make a joke about how obama's overrated yeah. i was right in the end it, it, he um he did uh a lot of empty promises. <laughs> well, it's worth getting back, um, getting back there, getting a when gigs are back. You just coming out there and saying, I, I don't right. know if anyone was here, <laughs> but um, about six, seven years ago, whenever it was, I um, I said Obama were wasn't really up to much, and you you guys booed me off stage. Well, look who's laughing now. A change never came. <laughs> Daniel Bedingfield giving you a standing ovation. So, what were you talking about anyway? Oh, Daniel Bedingfield. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we've milked all the... Uh, uh, we've milked the Bedingfield team. Um, let's go for your next choice, which is collecting Pokemon cards at the age of 32. Yeah. Well, basically, I've like... I've, I think I know why um, I like this and why... Um, it's a thing. So, like, so come back um, for lockdown and um, found, like, um, these folders of Pokemon cards. And I, and I thought, I'm like, um, you know, four or five cards of having a complete set. And, um, you know, when you get a complete set, like, um, you know, some of them are worth, like, um, you know, like the, the first ever one, a complete set, you're going to get, like, 700 quid for it, depending on, like, condition, probably, like, 
you know, more. Um, but the the one card that was like the rarest card when I was in first into them, when they first coming out was the Charizard card. Um, and, and I had that when I was a kid, but I, I think I kind of foolishly traded it for like, say four or five other shiny cards. Cause I was like, oh yeah, that's rare, but I'm getting a ton of stuff here. But if, if you have that card in like perfect condition, you will get a grand for that card. But probably there's an, an organization that rate card quality. So you would have to send your cards off to America. These people look at it, they rate it, and they put it in a sealed plastic container um, from 1 to 10 um, called PSA. And if you have a PSA 10 rated Charizard, then that will go for thousands. Um, so basically, I think what the reason they're worth so much as well is because when, when I was a kid, um, how old are you? Are we similar? 34. 34. So when, so maybe it would have been, was Pokemon cards a big thing? Yeah, they were. In school? I, I, I wasn't really into them. Um, but it, it was a big thing in my uh, day. Mm. I so I think. I thought Mew was the rarest one. Yeah, but that was the rarest one in like the game. But the, each like set of cards, there's like the holographic cards and there's ones that like everyone would get because um, they'll like tier it in terms of how easy it is to get that card. So even though there's like hundreds of them on eBay now and stuff, but they were just so rare at the time. So if, And it was common knowledge that the Charizard one was like, if you got that, like that was the one that you wanted. So I think now that like people of that generation are getting to our age where potentially they have disposable income um, and you're thinking like, or especially if someone has a lot of money, you sometimes think, oh, well, when I was a kid, what I wanted more than anything was that Charizard like Pokemon card. And now I'm like earning money. Yeah, I'll pay 200 quid and I'll, I'll have the thing that I wanted more than anything as a, as a kid or, or whatever. So I think like um, there's still, I think when you really like something, as a, I guess that's what nostalgia is, but there's still a bit of that excitement of seeing them and going, oh, it'd be great to have like um, to be able to look at the collection of, of them and kind of getting a new sort of shiny card. Or I think if I was, like I haven't bought any of the new ones, but I think if I was to open new packets of Pokemon cards, whatever they're like now, and getting like, when you kind of see that you've got a rare one, it's, it's still a sort of a thrill to do that but but yeah i've just been going on ebay and trying to pick them up which i think i've probably spent like a couple of hundred pounds on buying a lot of them but i try and pick them up for like two pounds four pounds like slightly worn ones and stuff like that but um yeah i'm just like um I think every couple of days i go on ebay and i search for them and i'm a bit obsessed is um, search though the thrill i mean like if, if someone came up to you and just gave you that card and said, here it is, wouldn't that just kind of like end the whole thrill of it all? Delighted about that. You would. I'd, I'd be, I'd be over, I'd be genuine. I think I'd just be over the moon. Oh, I'd, if it was like a mint Charizard and they gave it to me, I'd, 
I'd be so nervous because I'd be like, oh, yeah, oh, no, thanks. Thanks for that, mate, playing it cool. But as soon as I'd gone, I'd be like, you absolute moron. You just handed me about 500 quid worth of cash. And I, I would probably go online, put it up on, sell it, use the money from that to get a lot of other cards because I know that I can pick that up. If I wanted to, I could pick it up for like 100 quid, maybe a rough one. So if I, if I ever got like a mint condition one, I'd just sell it. And because um, I don't even know why I'm doing this, just to have them or sell them, but I'll never get them all. It's too expensive. If, you'd have to like win the lottery and then buy complete sets and stuff. But I can't justify like spending £600 on a complete set of Pokemon cards just to have a look at. So, my problem with yeah, if ever I get... My problem with these kind of things is their value comes with how much someone is willing to pay for it. You could say that that card mm. is worth what... It's worth a uh, hundred pounds, but it's only worth a hundred pounds if someone's willing to pay one hundred pounds. It's like have you have you seen storage? But I, I think storage wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go, oh, this thing, this uh, computer monitor is worth about fifty bucks. You're like, yeah, if you find someone who's going to pay fifty bucks for it, it's worthless until someone pays for something for it. And so yeah, yeah. one day someone might decide that Pokemon is not um, no one's interested in it anymore and so all the value decreases and it, the worth is not based on its <coughs> um, worth of like how much it costs to produce that card or what kind of material it's made of it's all wrapped around um, the premise is that someone's going to pay that much money for it. And so... Yeah. I think the thing with, like, the Pokemon cards is that... So, like, um, one recently of these PSA 10, and maybe it was, like, a first edition that you can get something, but it went for, like, £200,000 um, in an auction, like some famous, like, singer bought it. So, like... It's almost like the yeah, there's a, a mythology around like it that's um that has been cultivated by the people who probably manufacture the cards and then because people get caught up in that excitement, like the um one of the kind of more recent sets that they brought out, they um they have like say there's eighty cards in a set, but there's actually ninety. So you'll get a card that on the bottom says 83 out of 80. Um, so every time they release a set now, they have like nine or 10 special cards that are much rarer. Um, and then they're kind of straight up on eBay for like 250 quid, 500 quid or something. But quite a few people, I mean, they're rare, but if you had that 200 quid, you could easily get one. They're not like gold dust. But um, I think because every kind of set of the cards has one that, like, the makers are like, this one, there's barely any of it. Then as soon as anyone gets it, like, it just becomes so kind of wanted or so rare kind of thing. I, mean, I guess the old ones are like, you're running out of ones that are in perfect condition and stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm sure eventually they'll be worth nothing. 
I, I don't know if that'll be when like our generation gets to an age, you know, when we're like 80 and younger kids are like, well, I don't care about that thing because it's, it's sort of popular now, but nowhere near as much as it was. And and if you're 80, you're not paying 500 pounds for a Pokemon card. You're just trying to stay alive. Like um, every day, you're not going to get much enjoyment from a Charizard card when you're 80. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is what I'm doing is ultimately a pointless endeavour. But you can delude yourself into thinking that it's making you happy. And what's the difference between a deluded, a deluded um, form of happiness than a real form of happiness? I'd say exactly. They're the same. Yeah. They're both a sickness, I think. Yeah. Yeah, more for the people who are genuinely happy when they could just delude themselves. I really feel um, upbeat after this podcast. <laughs> um, I think I've determined from that that um, it's it's probably um, a complete waste of um, time to collect them unless you completely delude yourself into thinking it will make you happy. And in, in that part, it's it's worth it. So yeah. As long as you're comfortable with the fact that it's not a real sense of um, worth, then it's fine. Yeah, and it's a back... I, I genuinely think there's a slight backup investment of it in terms of, like... So one of the sets that I have at the minute, I'm maybe missing, like, nine of the kind of holographic cards from it, which I look for on eBay and I slowly pick up for like maybe slightly worn condition ones um, for like four pounds or, or something every now and then. So say that those nine cards cost me four pounds each um, and that's 36 pounds. That set then is worth, I'd say 300, 400 quid um, from how they've been going on eBay at the minute. And likewise, like, I reckon I'd have to pay 150 quid to finish the first one because it's two very rare cards. But then it's worth 600 pounds. So if I can complete those two sets, then I've got the first three sets, which I think as a as a group would I'd get a grand for. So if ever I needed a grand, like I needed to um, bail myself out of prison, I could just be like, guys, sell my Pokemon cards, and let's forget about. So it's an insurance policy for if I've gone like a crime spree in the future. You mentioned uh, eBay there, and that's another factor that's been brought into um, the worth of things. As in, with eBay, it's it's easy to set up a false um, mm. a false valuation of things. People put up like. Um, a Pokemon card and uh, set the um, buy it now price at three hundred pounds, and people are like, oh, it must be worth three hundred pounds mm. when it's actually not worth that at all. And so people can um, kind of convince people things are worth more than they actually are. Yeah, you have to know what you're talking about. You have to know the value when you go on there because I've, I've seen stuff on there. 
things that I've bought for like two pounds, three pounds, and someone's selling it for like 50 pounds, and there'll be like a bid on it. And you just think, if you carried on searching, you'd see like eight of these for four quid. But you've just committed yourself now because eBay, I think, has quite a strict contract that as soon as you bid on it, you can't go back on it. You can request to cancel an item once you've bought it, but then the seller can just go, no, you messed up. There's 50 pounds for this worthless thing, and now I'm posting it to you whether you want it or not. I don't think we should talk too much more about this because it's getting very geeky. Um, uh... We'll soon sort that out. With... <laughs> Let's go into the next one. Next yeah. film, The Room. Yeah, I mean, quick explanation of the film. Have you seen it? No, I. Every time I think about seeing it, I come across with a pain in my stomach and a dread that I'm going to have an awful time. Well, it's basically like you know, it's it's so well known as like it's described as like the best worst film ever. So it's an awful film, but again, there's like a mythology around it um that basically the guy who wrote directed produced and starred in it has no writing production directing or acting ability whatsoever but um just has like a lot of money but it's not even just that like no one knows where his money's come from and he's quite secretive um and like no one really knows where he's from or how old he is exactly and he was just um, a sort of slightly mad guy at an acting school that um, another actor met and he kind of latched himself onto this guy. Um, but yeah, so, so it's an, it is an awful film, but the thing that makes it like as popular as it is, is like, um, you know, either of us could, if, if we were given the script to that film, we could be like, oh, well, let's film a short film on, and we'll just use our phone cameras and all that kind of stuff. Like anyone could, if they had an awful script for a film, could film it and it would be awful. But this is like production values of, that you would look at it and think it looks like a film. It only falls apart when everyone's acting and talking. But, you know, it's shot on professional stuff. There's cutaways, there's locations, there's sets and stuff it's inexplicable that something could ever get to that point of production with it being as bad as it is. Um, so it's purely just because he, he had the money to, to do it. Um, so it, I think it is brilliant. It's brilliant to like um, Prince Charles cinema do like uh, show showings of it. Um, and me and my brother went to see that and the guy was doing like a Q and A at the beginning and he's, and he's mad, like, the way he answers questions is mad. Everything about him is mad. Like, we, we met him and, like, he um, signed... Uh, I can show you this. I've got it up here. God. Um, a little signed copy of the script. And, like, meeting him, he's, like... Even though he becomes kind of cult hero, he's not confident. He would barely, like, make eye contact with you. Um He's like a very shy guy. But um, but yeah, so it's known for being bad and so bad it's hilarious. But my argument is that um, from 
doing lots of writing over lockdown is that I also genuinely think that it's hard to criticise the um, the script of the film as well because so it, it's objectively awful when you compare it to other films but I think if you say to like most people who might go that film's awful if you can write um, a 90 minute film with a beginning middle and end and characters and all this kind of stuff that I don't know if many people could can even do that never mind do one that's awful mm. like um, it'd be like someone doing a backflip and at the end they kind of just land on their knees they just they, they flip over but they smash their knees and their face into the ground and you're like that's a terrible backflip I couldn't get the point where my knees go over my head I couldn't even do the first part of a backflip so I can't criticize them the quality of you can criticize them for um why have they attempted to do a backflip like um but you can't criticize the quality of the backflip um, and yeah, I, I just, I remember like watching the, um, oh, uh, the film that, um, James Franco did, um, the something artist. Yeah. The disaster artist and coming away from it, genuinely feeling quite inspired and in, in thinking like, oh, if I really wanted to write something, I should just do it because this mad guy wanted to write a film script and just went crazy, like, you know, staying up, working on it over and over again. And it's not good, but, like, if you want to do something, there's no excuse for not... It made me think, yeah, there's there's no excuse that I couldn't, if I want to write a film script, get one done or get one done in a month, and if it's bad, but at least learn some lessons in the process of doing it or that kind of thing. Um yeah, I think it's like um, a genuinely sort of inspiring tale of um, that you can't criticise some someone doing something that you might want to do yeah. if you haven't been able to do it. Like, um, I guess like the same in comedy that like, um, you know, you, you could see a comedian do an hour show at Edinburgh and, and think, ah, oh, this guess is a bit crap or whatever. But um, if you've been trying to write an hour show for years and haven't, quite a bit of work it out then there's something to be said for the fact that they've just managed to get an hour together um so yeah i, I just kind of think he's like yeah i'm just looking at it's got the script here how many pages yeah it's like 115 pages so much to write like dialogue and stuff and it is awful but and there are a few characters who come up in it and then just never return and at one point, the mum says that she's got cancer and then just she never mentions it. She just drops that into a conversation and then it never comes up again as an issue that you think a good scriptwriter would go, oh, she announced she had cancer 20 minutes in and we haven't talked about it. But um, still, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's just impressive yeah. to, to finish it. What I'm taking away from that is that there's, people that there's you get two sets of people someone that uh uh creates a good film and someone that creates a bad film and they're both equal in the fact that they've said to themselves i'm going to create this film and they should both be 
commended whether they make a good film or a bad film because they they took it upon themselves to say, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And the fact that they've both made that film is <coughs> irrelevant that it's bad or good. They should just be um, commended for doing something um, and that's something that they aspire to doing and if if you're gonna um uh judge someone um saying that it's bad well you're you're never gonna achieve anything if you go into something um and being fearful of being wrong mm. like you've got you've always got a go into a project knowing that it could turn out wrong and the commend uh, the commendable thing is still doing it even though you think that it might turn out badly well that's what i think would like stop me and i like i'm because i i've written like some scripts over lockdown and i want to write a feature script that might not go anywhere but just because it's hard to structure a 90 minute like thing um and i have ideas but i haven't quite started them yet and stuff like that because there's, there's so much in writing where you just kind of go and i guess the counter argument is he hasn't done any of the things that would stop a normal person writing it like going i don't really have a story or i don't um i can't work out this scene or, or whatever because i don't think any part of him has ever gone well that's not very good i i don't i don't think he's redrafted anything i think he's just written it and gone yeah that'll do but um yeah i guess it's like how people say um the da vinci code i haven't read the da vinci code but people say it's it's an awful book um and it's quite poorly written and stuff but um even if it is poorly written it's uh, you know structurally audacious just to try and write a novel's worth of stuff so I just kind of think, fair enough. Yeah. F the haters. Mm. Um, That's my argument. Oh, no. That was your last choice. Oh, so we're now on to um, the choice that you made for me to make, yeah. uh, for me to defend, which you think is indefensible. And mm. Having a DJ in the... Uh, top man shop in Oxford Street. Yeah, they might have it in other shops yeah. or other branches, but I know for a fact that, yeah, you just go into Oxford Street, top man sometimes, and it's just really loud and there's someone doing like a DJ set um, and looking, and they look like they're enjoying it or they look like they're playing a venue that is like good rather than just they're the background noise, yeah. people shopping. It's... um. Yeah, I, I think it's unforgivable and I think it, it's humiliating for everyone involved. Well, I, I personally think in, in retail situations where you've got like a clothing department store, I think the music they play in there is an important factor that needs to be seriously looked 
upon because the music you're playing within your shop is has got to be representative of the brand that you're selling. So oh yeah, can I just can I just um add though? Yeah. Um, no one's disagreeing with that, Darren. Yeah. But what's your argument for it being played live by someone rather than them just putting a CD on? This is what we need to get to. You can go on about live. What do you mean? I mean, there's a guy with some DJ decks, and as you come through the door, Topman at a DJ station, sort of so giving he, it the big in and like he's playing original content. No, well, I guess he's doing what he's putting records on and giving him a bit of a remix and and stuff like he's basically like could just put a CD in and play it. But even if he's doing like would they're there, with, would you be with, all right with that? Him just putting a CD in. Um, I'd be all right with someone up in the office okay. putting a CD in and just letting it play, not putting a CD in and then standing as people come in going. Like, good tune. I think that would be a bit weird. So you think it's a bit of um, extravagance to have someone there, like, as like a hype man, I suppose? Yeah, they're basically like a clothing hype man. They're hyping up clothes. <laughs> but they're trying to create a, a an atmosphere that it's like a, a festival or a nightclub. I'd say, would you say? That I guess, but it's it's not, is it? No. It's something on Oxford Street. But um, garden centres, I'd say their <laughs> hype man is Santa Claus during the um, Christmas period, and garden centres aren't Lapland. What do you mean Santa's the hype man? What is it? He's... They dress... All garden centres have a grotto at Christmas. Oh, yeah, fair enough. And they turn it into, like, a, a Lapland, and they've got a Santa Claus and elves. And that's based on the premise that garden centres are Lapland, and they're not Lapland. No. So, I'd say they're just trying to... Cre um, and then you go into some bars, and there's a tiki bar... And it's not Hawaii, but they're pretending it's Hawaii. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. So you're, you're almost saying it's not... It's, it's not almost top. not Top Man. It's like a themed... A themed Top Man, yeah. Because do you think that's what... Do you think they're being ironic with it? No, I don't think they are. <laughs> I think it, it, it probably all based down to one day there was... Um, a person that was employed in a top man because his father's big in top man and they he didn't really have any skills and then he came in with the idea that he'd be a DJ in the store and they just let him do it because <laughs> he, <laughs> he didn't have any other skills to do. I guess there's something quite sweet if you put it like that, that it is just someone who um, their dad owns Top Man and they've got no other qualities other than a decent taste in music yeah. and they just let him do it. I mean, if it's, if it, if it, I would think that the person 
all the people that have had that job have probably enjoyed themselves doing that job despite people going into the shop probably thinking they're a bit of a twat so they've got to live with that yeah i suppose um so at least if one person's happy it's a small price to pay yeah i do feel sorry for them because i, I know i mean i guess not everyone's thinking what i'm thinking but i know what i think when i go in and see them and and i think as well i don't hide it in my i think in my facial expression i think they can see when i walk in and i see them i'm like what the hell is a dj doing here and why do they look like this is a good gig um and i guess if they see that etched on a hundred people every coming through the door every 15 minutes it's going to drag away at your soul a bit so fair play to them for keeping up the energy for like a two-hour dj set Would you purposely walk out of a shop if you saw the person there? Um, yeah, I wouldn't put that past me, actually, because I have gone in there before and the DJ music is, like, so loud that I think I've just thought, nah, I'll come back at, like, nine o'clock in the morning one, one day when they don't have the DJ. Because um, that would be madness, nine o'clock as soon as it opens. Have you ever been into a lush because you felt lonely? No. Uh, no, not me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. Oh, what, because they approach you so much there? Yeah, they're quite friendly, aren't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I really don't like that. Even like, um, yeah, it just happens um, a lot where, um, yeah, like, um, I, I think I really lose my rag leg around Christmas when I might be getting gifts or something there and someone comes up and goes, you all right? Um, can I help you looking for anything in particular? Oh, no, just, just browsing, like, um, thank you, though. And then you walk around and someone else does it. I think I've only got three polite responses in me before I will say to the fourth person, like, oh, like, you're the fourth person to ask me, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, you know, I'll come and ask if I need anything. I'm not, like, I know how a shop works. I'm not going to be like, I can't see what I want. What could I possibly do? Um, yeah, I can't, I can't deal with that. Can I just see the... Um tin of meatballs you have uh, couldn't find in your pocket there please um, <laughs> are you going to pay for that <laughs> I'd love it if Lush started doing also did for a Bentos meatballs <laughs> or just had a tin open in the corner to try and cancel out the smell of um, the Lush products <laughs> maybe that's what would even it out a bit of salt while you're browsing they're definitely up their um, northern clientele, I think. Oh, yeah. If you've got a free meatball. Yeah. Well, you've just um, come up with their next rebranding, so I think you should contact them. Yeah. Whack them an email now. <laughs> I think we've talked enough now. Um, okay. I've... I like if that's how you end the podcast. Just go... <laughs> I think we've talked enough now. I don't want people to get too much of a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Have you got anything you'd like to plug to my very dwindling listenership? 
I mean, there's nothing going on this year, is there? I should remind people to mm. go on YouTube and look at all of Ian's 100 Reasons 2 videos because they're absolutely hilarious. Oh, thank you. Have you got any more of those in the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, we filmed about like 16 of them, maybe like 18, I think. But um, some of them are sort of time-related and COVID kind of stopped some of them being released. But um, but yeah, they're kind of like, I filmed them for um, these guys who are kind of in charge of the channel. Um, and sometimes things just don't come out for ages. And I'm not like, um, I don't have to get up and go sometimes to email them and go, what's going on with these? So I just kind of let them come out when they come out. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I guess comedy is a bit... Yeah, subscribe to that, and um, hopefully gigs will come back soon. So my my phone went. I'm on ten percent battery, so this is very good timing. Oh, brilliant! Um, so, any charities you want to plug? <laughs> um, um, the RSPCA. Right, a very good one. Animals. Yeah, especially at um, this time. Saying that, oh, I've, I've, I'm getting very broody to get a puppy at the moment. I've been oh, um, yeah, I would like videos. that. <laughs> They've really got, gone up in price over lockdown, though. Oh, prices. yeah. I um, I tried to buy, like, um, a bike for when I was going to be in Ghoul and, um, like, was going to bike shops and they were just, like, completely bare because everyone was just panic buying, like, Dogs, bikes, home, any like home equipment or anything like that. Like um, everyone's just gone mad. But um, yeah, dogs will be a, a premium now. If you bought your dogs up early in January and selling them on, <laughs> now's the time to do it. The, the 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 pain for me though is I've got two dogs already, and we've just had the the bitch done, had her eggs removed, so. Oh, no more puppies for her, so we couldn't have no. couldn't have cashed in on that. Yeah, you've you've missed a trick there. We've got the boy dog. We could stud him out though. So yeah, anyone anyone wants some uh, Weimarana dog uh, spunk? I've got I've got plenty of it. Jars of the stuff. Jars of the stuff. I don't know how long it's been lasting refrigeration. I, I'll Google that. Um, it's worth giving it a go. Yeah. I mean, he's always up for it. Um, anyway, thanks for coming on this, Ian. No, oh, you're welcome. I won't leave it too long to put it up. Uh, so, um, you'll have that to look forward to. Um, yeah. The wave of um, subscribers I'm going to bring you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so I'll end this professionally by saying goodbye. Bye. Okay, let's hear it. Defenders of the universe, it's Darren Maskell and a guest. Defenders of the universe, who knows what they're going to defend next. That's 12 seconds.